0: This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast.
1: We are your study buddies for neonatology topics.
0: I'm Dr. Ben Korshaw.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbeau.
0: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Wednesday. Renal weak. Daphna, holding strong.
1: We're making it. We're getting there. Okay. I ask uh, you first. Question 33. Okay. Preterm infants have higher serum creatinine concentrations in the first few weeks of life compared to term infants because A, preterm infants have a greater creatinine clearance because of impaired glomerular filtration. B, Preterm infants have greater reabsorption of filtered creatinine in leaky renal tubules, or C, both.
0: And D is neither. Um, Yeah, D is neither. But anyway, so we have two choices. Uh, Choice Mm -hmm. B, I knew to be true. Preterm infants have a greater reabsorption of filtered creatinine in leaky renal tubules. That is true. Choice A was very confusing because it says, Mm -hmm. I think I'm not exactly sure what statement is indeed Uh, The correct one. But regardless, the way the statement is phrased makes no sense. It says preterm infant have a greater creatinine clearance because of impaired glomerular filtration. So uh, anyway, I took that to mean that if you have impaired glomerular filtration, then you shouldn't clear as much. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, and Mm -hmm. we've talked about glomerular filtration that preterm infants, it's it's not, it shouldn't be affected. So A, I don't think was correct. So that left me with just B to be the correct answer.
1: Um, That's exactly right uh, because preterm infants have a lower creatinine clearance because they do have some impairment in the glomerular glomerular filtration. But like you said, it would cause a lower creatinine clearance Um, and they have a greater reabsorption of filtered creatinine in leaky renal tubules. Um, In general, creatinine is higher the younger you are. Um, so say the twenty-five to twenty-eight weaker, um, will have a higher serum creatinine than the thirty-eight to to forty-two weaker, and then it gets lower with advancing postmenstrual age. So if you have a twenty-five weaker, the creatinine may be quite high in the first week of life, um, decreasing in the second to eighth week of life, um, and then really reaching kind of the physiologic endpoint. Uh, by two months of
0: life. Okay. I don't have anything else to say. That's okay. All right. Question 35, then let's move mm-hmm. right along. Daphna, which of the following sequelae is most common among infants with autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease? We finally reached the polycystic kidney mm-hmm. disease. <laughs> Choice A, chronic lung disease. Choice B, death. Choice C, hypernatremia. Choice D, hypertension. Choice E, poor growth. Dum dum dum. Dun
1: dun dun. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I thought the choices were were between C, D, and E, um, and it made sense to me that they would be at highest risk for high blood pressure, so I picked D. E.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's the that's correct. And uh, so let's let's look at the answer before I, I chime in. But a a um. So the answer states that a recent large cohort of infants with autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease showed that 65% of them developed hypertension. And so that's the key, right? Many of these outcomes presented in, this, in these entry choices are potential outcomes mm-hmm. for babies with polycystic kidney disease. However, they're asking you which one is the most likely. Um, almost all had hypernatremia as a result uh, as had I'm sorry, not hyper, hyponatremia as a mm-hmm. result of underlying dysregulation of sodium reabsorption in the abnormally formed collecting ducts. This hyponatremia leads to intravascular volume expansion followed by severe hypertension. Mm-hmm. Um, in this cohort, 25% died. That was one of the choices. 12% of survivors had uh, chronic lung disease. That was another choice. 42% had chronic renal insufficiency and 25% had poor growth which was another choice. So the only choice that was outright wrong was hypernatremia. They have hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. Now uh, just to talk a little bit more about polycystic kidney disease, right? We have two types. We have the autosomal recessive and the autosomal dominant. And the autosomal recessive is the one that usually obviously presents in childhood because of the recessive nature of the disease. It's coded on chromosome six. They tend to have large ecogenic kidneys um, and the, uh, it's often associated with oligohydramnios, sometimes an empty bladder. And on ultrasound, they have these, this is the buzzword, right? The snowstorm appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they develop severe hypertension. And eventually this could lead to liver cirrhosis and biliary dysgenesis. Um, the autosomal dominant is coded on chromosome 16. And these are the PKD1, PKD2. Um, but babies are usually normal at birth. And um, and uh, yeah, so... Um, they have an increased risk of aneurysm, but usually they don't present in the neonatal period. So you probably will see more of the orosomal recessive type. Anything else?
1: No, that's okay. pretty good. Question 36. Which of the following statements is true about multicystic dysplastic kidney disease in the newborn? And I think some people get multicystic mm. dysplastic kidney confused with polycystic kidney disease. So I think that's the first key. I'm sorry, you may have, maybe you were going to say that. So this question is not about polycystic kidney disease. It's about multi-cystic dysplastic kidney disease in the newborn. Is it A, always presents as an abdominal mass on physical exam. B, bilateral disease is usually severe and presents with severe oligohydramnios and pulmonary hypoplasia. C, most newborns have an associated urinary tract abnormality, such as vesicoureteral reflux. D, unilateral disease usually presents with elevated creatinine concentrations. And then the combination answers. E is B, C, and D. So that bilateral disease is usually severe. Most of them are associated with a urinary tract abnormality. And that unilateral disease presents with elevated creatinine concentrations. Or F is B and C, that bilateral disease is usually severe and that most newborns have an associated urinary tract abnormality.
0: Okay. So, um, yeah. So this is very different from um, the polycystic mm-hmm. kidney disease. And um, yeah. So let's look at the answer choices. Always presents as an abdominal mass on physical examination. Um, we're looking for the true statement. So the one thing I did remember as a fellow is that whenever the OB call you for a consult, multi-cystic dysplastic kidney is kind of not the worst because technically some of these cysts can involute. And that's the only source of hope that you could sort of give these parents who are very anxious about this diagnosis. So uh, the fact, like we said before, when they say always, never, be careful, always okay. presents as sub- an abdominal mass. No, it's not true. Some of them involute and they go away. Um Bilateral disease is usually severe and presents with severe oligohydramnios and uh, pulmonary hypoplasia. I think that's true. Choice C, most newborns have an associated urinary tract abnormality, such as vesicoureteral urethral reflux. I think that's true too. And then choice D says, unilateral disease usually presents with elevated creatinine concentration. I think this is something that isn't true and that is quite common for kidney disease, meaning that as long as one kidney is intact, usually your function should be okay. And you should be able to uh, have proper um, homeostasis. <laughs> so I don't think D is correct, which leaves me with just B and C. And so F is a combination that works for that. So I would say B and C.
1: Um, B and C. Okay. That's the correct answer. Many dysplastic kidneys do involute even in the prenatal period. So an abdominal mass may not always be present at birth in an infected infant. And like you said, if you have um, one kidney um, affected, and it is more common to be uh, unilateral than bilateral, and if you have one kidney affected, it's usually the left-sided kidney that is more commonly affected, mm-hmm. um, that kidney may be large and may be dysfunctional, but the other kidney tends to do the work um, for both kidneys. Um, and so, um, again, those with unilateral disease usually lack any signs or symptoms other than possibly an abdominal mass. And then bilateral disease is usually severe because neither kidney works well, um, and it does present with severe oligohydramnios and pulmonary hypoplasia. Okay, so that's what we see in our answer response. But I will point out that if you're using the third edition, which is the newest edition of the neonatology review um, that they do have in here, additional clinical findings, 90% with other genitourinary anomalies, again, of which uh, vesicoureteral reflux or obstructive uropathy um, is one. Um, and I did some additional investigation. And so um, there is... Definitely in association with other GU anomalies in the kidney that's affected, but also in the contralateral kidney. So lots of things to look
0: for. Okay. Question 38. Renal agenesis occurs as a result of failure of development of the A, early pronephros, B, nephrogenic cord, C, mesonephric duct, D, ureteric bud.
1: Okay. So my good friend, Dr. Ruas, um, who you've met, Mm -hmm. she doesn't study the kidney, but she gave us a lecture on the kidney when I was a fellow. And she said, if you remember only one thing from this lecture, (laughs) you remember that renal agenesis occurs uh, if the ureteric bud doesn't develop. So I did remember only one thing from that lecture, and this
0: is it. And this is the question, man, you're lucky like that. I would have remembered some esoteric fact or some random stuff about the kidney and would have been left to my own devices when it comes to that. So um, that is correct. When it comes to embryology, um, I hated embryology in medical school. Mm -hmm. It was not taught to me in an engaging, exciting way. And I didn't engage with the subject. And obviously becoming a neonatologist, you had to sort of go back and revisit that relationship. So let's make this easy. There's a big trap here, right? Renal agenesis. You're tempted to pick the answer A as the answer, saying early pro nephros, right? It sounds like well, if if the process starts in the early phase of the pro nephros, which means the early nephron, Mm -hmm. right, then it must be what leads to renal agenesis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where the trap is. The bottom line is that the the kidney, the embryology of the kidney. Uh, really evolves in three steps where you have the first two that are just transient and they're just there to get some function going in during fetal life and eventually, um, eventually uh, degenerates. So the pronephros is something that doesn't stay for that. that it's something that is present early on in gestation. Um, and by a month of life, by a month of gestation is gone. Same thing happened to the mesonephros. Um, and eventually, the nephrogenic cord, which is this, this uh, mesenchymal sort of group of cells, will connect with the ureteric bud and form what is the kidney. And what's interesting is that the pronephros and the mesonephros go from um, rostral to caudal. So it goes from top to bottom. But the ureteric bud goes from, uh, from bottom to top. So it grows upwards, right? And it meets this, this metanephric mesenchyme. And so, if we're revisiting those choices, choice A was early pronephros. That is wrong. Uh, that's, that's a vestigial type of structure. Choice B was the nephrogenic cord. And that's a group of mesenchymal cells. And that's, in my opinion, the biggest, if you knew the, the topic, this is the trickiest one, because technically the kidney develops from this combination of the ureteric bud meeting with the nephrogenic cord. But the nephrogenic cord really is the name it's being given before it interacts with the ureteric bud, because at that point it becomes the metanephric mesenchyme. So it's, it's like they really went tricky on us here. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's not the answer. Um, but it probably would have been the closest if you, if you, if you ask me. The mesonephric duct is a is a vestigial structure as well, and you're left with the ureteric bud, which eventually will become um, the kidney. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Daphne. Oh, go ahead. Question forty-two. That you're mm-hmm. supposed to ask me. Question forty-two.
1: I ask you question forty-two, and then we're done for the day. Which of okay. the following statements about intrauterine vesicoamniotic shunt placement is accurate? Um, is the answer A, this procedure is indicated for fetuses with severe oligohydramnios that presents in the third trimester. B, this procedure poses great risk because infections and in preterm birth can occur. C, shunt failure rarely occurs. D, A and B, which are indicated for fetuses with severe oligo that present in the third trimester, and the procedure poses great risk because infections and in preterm birth can occur. Or E, all of the above, including that shunt failure rarely occurs.
0: Okay. That was not such, I mean, uh, have you dealt with uh, mm-hmm. VA shunts? No. No. So believe me, if you, if you ever dealt with a VA shunt or babies that were born after a VA shunt was placed, shunt failure rarely occurs. Definitely. <laughs> not the right answer. Definitely not the right answer. Um, choice B procedure poses a great risk because of infection preterm birth etc yes that's very true and then a I thought was a bit tricky because the mm-hmm. procedure is indicated for fetus with severe oligohydramnios that is true that presents in the third trimester no I mean this is something that's uh, really a, a, a sort of Hail Mary for babies that are in the second trimester Um, Usually third trimester is, isn't uh, an indication for these types of shunt. So I was I almost picked A and B because mm-hmm. I didn't read all the way to the mm-hmm. end. But thankfully, I followed Doctor Br- Dr. Martin's advice and read all the way to the end of the sentence. And it's only B. So only B is the answer, I think.
1: Yeah, those really long answer choices really can get to you. So, that's exactly right. The the vesicoamniotic shunt placement is indicated when there's severe oligohydramnios in the fetus during the second trimester, and that's because if we don't treat the oligohydramnios, then we have this risk, very significant risk of of lung hypoplasia. Now, if oligohydramnios develops in the third trimester, that's still concerning, but at least we've gotten some lung development. Um, and so this, like you said, is is a, is a high risk procedure. Um, there's definitely the risk of infection and preterm birth and shunt failure or displacement is very common. Um, and so that's why it's it's done basically uh, Should we... as a life-saving technique.
0: Right. Can we explain um, what is what is a VA shunt specifically? Go for it. I mean, it's not very complex. It's just basically yeah. <laughs> a plastic tube that goes from the baby's mm-hmm. bladder to the amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. And if you have any lower urinary tract obstruction, it will bypass the obstruction. It will allow the urine to actually flow into the, um, into the, uh, to, to flow into the what am oh man, what am I the word I'm looking for, into the uh, amniotic.
1: It, it went into the amniotic, because into the amniotic it, sac because it, it take basically takes the place of the fetal urine that is not the
0: not allowed the, to be excreted. Being, that's
1: not right. That's not being that's not being allowed to be excreted, um,
0: and then yeah. that 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 fetal urine can then be be allow for proper lung development, which is the big deal, obviously.
1: Right. So when it works, it works. Well, because it basically takes it takes um, that uh, extra fluid mm-hmm. <laughs> and puts it where it needs to go. Um, but that's only if it works and you don't yeah. end up with preterm birth
0: or infection. And sometimes you do end up with preterm birth and that's accepted mm-hmm. because it's a bridge in terms of trying to get you to a gestational mm-hmm. age that mm-hmm. can allow survival. Um, so, yeah. In that context, I think it has it has tremendous value. Okay. Is, is that it for us today? Yes. All right. Short episode, people. But that was good. Okay. All right, Daphne, See you tomorrow. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to NICUpodcasts at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.